0: You're listening to Design Talk, a podcast for conversations connecting design with theory, organisations, business and impact. This episode was recorded in conjunction with the TechArchives.Irish project led by John Stern. This is the first part of a two-part interview with Damien Scattergood, programmer and co-founder of Star Translation Dublin, Ireland. Damien recalls how he first got into programming as a teenager and his early experiences developing video games before moving into software localization.
1: Okay, Damien, um, let's start at the beginning. Uh,
0: games, I believe. Yes. So my, my video game career—I That's where I started coding in video games. Probably 1981. Were you, were you, were you a student? No. Um, the, the ZX80 came out, and for some reason, I just had an interest in computers. My, me and my friends were interested in computers. So the ZX80 was the first machine that we sort of got our sort of hands on, that and the TRS-80. And then from there, I, I was saved off enough money. I managed to get my dad to buy me a ZX81 then for the next Christmas, and I started to learn a bit about machine code because I just wanted to see if you could write games. Uh, and then my game career really took off then when I got the ZX Spectrum. Uh, when the spectrum arrived I started to write uh, video games I think it was probably about 15, 16 at the time so it was just something I was madly interested in the spectrum was what year? Uh, 1983 I think it was either 83 or 84 Uh, that was a Z80 machine so all of my background was all all around Z80 stuff right? Uh, at that stage there there was nothing around in terms of the video games business no tools and things like that I was a tech head kid So I was always into, you know, making machines, robots, anything like that, something to do stuff. So robotics sort of got me into robot magazines and Spectrum magazines and computer magazines. So that was, so it was the first time a a computer was available to a kid. Because at that time, the only games we, we were able to play was we would go into town, into the local arcades and play video game arcade machines. So that's where we sort of started.
1: So what happens when you write a game and you're only 15 or 16?
0: How do you say, yeah. So, well, the first hard part is, is trying to work out how to write a game. So you spend ages and ages and ages uh, developing how do you do it, right? So how do you do it? You've got to, as as I was saying, there, is no, there was no data around, so you had to buy all the local, every magazine under the sun to try and work out how to how to write programs and what a computer program is. So you learn programming from very, very basic uh uh, uh, fundamentals right uh, even down to some of the electronics like you know simple thing when my first spectrum bought my first spectrum if it crashed for example there was no reset button on it so I had to learn the electronics of how to reset as an 80 chip right so I built a bit of hardware right uh, from that how to write a few tools then you know the idea at the time there were, everybody had ideas so it was lots of, uh, So the idea was easy uh, But then one of the hard parts, and I still say this even to today uh, as game developers, because I'm still involved in games development now, is that the concept of writing a complete game is actually quite difficult because it has to have a beginning, a middle, and an end. It has to have everything. It's not just a thing where you've got, you see a lot of demos nowadays of games, and, oh, look, this is a great 3D thing, but it's not a game, right? So understanding the the process of putting a package together is, is is a skill in its own right. And then from there, you take it to, well, now that I have a game, how am I going to sell it? How do I make money out of this right? I had no idea how to do that, right? So that's where you just start, right? Uh, phoning people in the UK or whatever. You know, hey, I have a game. Uh, do you want to buy it off me and make me millions, right? So you start doing all of that. And uh, from making lots and lots of phone calls over a long period of time, you eventually get to some people who say, right, we'll have a look at it. Right. So first game, uh, you know, didn't really go very well. So and I, I didn't get it, didn't get anywhere with that. So I just kept pushing and pushing and pushing. I had a couple of games, but the guys taught at the time, weren't good enough to publish, right? Um, My first game ever, full full game was a game called Insomnia. And you can buy it now on my <laughs> channel, believe it or not. 35 years, <laughs> 35 years later, you can still buy it. Um, But that, um, the next, from there, what I wanted to get into programming, I was looking all over the place for programming jobs.
1: So, you mentioned Insomnia. What was it? It was a
0: small maze game on
1: ZX Spectrum. In what year?
0: It was either 83 or 84.
1: Quite soon after you got the Spectrum. Yeah, it was you, you, soon, you, soon you, enough. You, yeah. you had Insomnia. Yeah. No pun intended.
0: <laughs> true. <laughs> <laughs> true, 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 true. A lot of the time, you know what was interesting, at time, which probably interests you from your archives point of view, is uh, at the time, the very first Spectrum that came out was a 16K Spectrum. And there were no 48K Spectrums in this country. So to get one, I went out to Tomorrow's World in Sandyford, and knocked on the door and said, get me one, because I want one. And they did. They ordered one for me, and they gave me stuff. And, and I used to use them as, when I needed bits and pieces, I would go out to the guys out there. Uh, it was Morris Cohn and all the lads. They were really, really good guys. They were nice guys to me, right? Because I was only a young flip right, uh, so that, that was that was one of the things we, we used to do, right then I used to, uh, you know, learning more, I would get on the boat, because it was cheap <laughs> go to the UK, to all the game exhibitions try and meet people, chat with people, do everything you possibly could, under the sun to uh, talk to people um, any time I people would, would write things down in those days, on paper you know, if you were lucky we had a typewriter and we could type something, right, you didn't have only the the, you know, the wealthy developers had printers, right Uh, my first printer I got in a skip from somebody down on Grafton Street but we won't say which computer company was down there (laughs) it was Grafton Street it was uh, a some company was throwing out stuff yeah I used to do dumpster diving to get hardware right I was very good at it (laughs) right uh, uh, but anyway good long story short uh the I I could tell you a few stories right the uh we would write stuff down and we would share it with people. So you'd meet people. There was a computer club in Dublin and I think it ran out of Powers Hotel that I joined. Uh, it was run by a bunch of 16-year-olds, I think, at the time. And We would just go There's Something, something
1: about this, does it have a name?
0: I think it was the Irish Computer Club. But I do have my card, my membership card, so I can show it to you. So from that, we used to meet every like, second or third Saturday and we'd go and talk code. How'd you do that? How'd you do that? X, Y, and Z, right? So that's how you used to do things, right? Now, when I, when I started to get get my first connections in the UK then, and I had, I got some jobs, right? One of the things that the funny part in the old days, people didn't have phones. So what I would have to, if I, if I had a business call coming up, you'd have to save a bunch of 5P coins. I'd have mountains of them, 50 quid. I'd go, you know, I'd go and just, right? And he'd be in the local phone box. Uh, my local neighbour was also my other office where, they, where they, they were the one person on the road that had a phone. And I would, uh, you know, I'd say, right, you can make, you can phone Damien at whatever and I will phone you at, and we used to make those phone calls, right? So thanks to Mrs. Rafter for our phone, right? <laughs> Start of my career. Yeah. So uh, out in Baldwell. I think the first sort of, uh, what I did in the meantime, I'm trying to get this timing right now because I've, I've, I'll have to double check my timing. I got my first sort of, break There's a, this is a really long story now right it'll go on forever so just tell me you want me to skip fast past it right I wanted to start my own games company uh, did approach the IDA at the time was laughed out of place uh, I then went to ANCO at the time to do the start your own business course which I completed and while I was doing that there was a section in it for two weeks on computer programming now I said to the guy, Look, I don't want to do computer programming because that's what I do for a living right so what uh I think it was joe duffy duffy michael Michael Duffy, his name is Mr. Duffy right the time. He said to me, right, what we'll do is we'll let you play with the North star dimension that we have inside. You can teach yourself c p m and stuff and the eighty eighty so I went crazy then for the next two weeks and learned eighty eighty and uh, how to program uh the the that, that server, right, uh, taught me how to code in C. And from that, I got my first job in, I think that was in Comology, because Comology were looking for a C programmer that knew hardware and stuff. So I jumped onto Comology, and that's where I started working for them. From what we were doing there was a lot of R&D work. Uh, very good, because it, it suited me, because it was uh, both C programming on the PC and uh, machine code as well we were uh, developing one of the things, we developed the handheld machine that did the poll tax in the UK. So if you were knocking on doors in the UK, you had this handheld machine and you said, oh, oh Alan, uh, you owe us, you know, X euros for your poll tax, would you? And you could take the money and print a receipt And those machines, right? And one of the fun parts of those machines was we had to drop test them from that height because if you were at a doorstop and someone chased you away and you dropped the machine, to not break, just, just so that was very interesting.
1: Can you just clarify? Um, Comology had a contract to produce presumably a large number of these machines.
0: They were, I they were doing the software for those machines. I can't remember who was doing it, wasn't the hardware. So, yeah, so but but we were we were testing, I can't remember the exact part, piece that they were doing on it, right? But they had some of the machines and we were writing the software for them. It was very unusual, it was a, like a long machine with a, a t- UI, UI touch screen, so for people to do, uh, to correct people's...
1: uh What, what, what happened, Ronnie, what happened with the poll tax? Well,
0: the poll tax was the thing about Margaret Thatcher's thing, she introduced that, and it was, wasn't didn't go down very well, but I can't remember what happened in the end with
1: it. I mean, did they, did they get to the stage of going around everybody's house with a... Yeah, that, they did. That was yeah, done, yeah. I, I yeah, think yeah,
0: that yeah. was done, yeah. Um As far as I can remember, it was done, the that they, that they certainly started it. I don't know if they, it was one of them, they started it, but I don't know if they finished it. Right. Uh, So that was one of the things we were doing there. And they were also working on, there was other software we worked on. Uh, I remember the the scariest one we were working on was a, um, it was an alarm system inside um, a, a, what's it called? You know that where you have, uh, when you make uh, straw and wheat and stuff, like. you know when you make wheat and, and, and oats in those repositories, when you have all of that, it generates a lot of dust, and that dust floats in, this, in the air of the uh, the warehouse. And so the the, silos, are these were right? sort of big silos. Big silos, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now, if you get a spark inside those silos, you get a very big explosion, right? And one of the pieces of software we were working on, uh, and I don't remember what it was ever released, was was to, uh, uh, we had like a 0.00 microsecond alarm that when the alarm went off, we had to set the sprinklers off. And we spent a lot of time working on that one thing because our, the tolerance was like nothing, basically, right? Um, and I remember writing, writing, writing software for some of us. Uh, that was one of the things they were doing as well. And they were doing a lot of different things like that as well. Um, they had another division in there, just if, if you're interested, it might be another thread for you, is uh, Jerry Jones, uh, EVP Partners. He was doing stuff in there as well. He was one of the partners in there. He was either one of the partners in the company, but he was sort of the guy doing a lot of these sort of deals for the, for the company. He would know more about what was actually going on on the outside. I was just doing it on the inside, on the coding.
1: Again, I I remember Jerry, but I don't remember exactly what he did.
0: Yeah, he was a bit a business uh, business. So now now he, he's investing in, in in IT businesses and doing lots of stuff with like that. But he was always into that. He was always doing that type of work, right? So that was that was uh, that was commodity. So after commodity I I went to a company called Mentor Educational Services in Trim County Mead. Um, that was a a big move for me because they were. That was sort of, I wanted to really do computer games and computer gaming stuff. And they were doing educational software based in Mead, in Trim County Mead. Right? What uh, sort
1: of educational software?
0: So they had developed some uh, educational software on the uh, PC and on the Spectrum machines at the time. They wanted me to develop Spectrum machines and Amstrad Amstrad machines as well. And a machine called the MSX machines. I don't know if you remember. MSX, right? Japanese standard. So, yeah. So, what what we were doing was, it was targeted at uh, zero to three-year-olds, three to six-year-olds, and, you know, nine to 12-year-olds. So, everything from uh, simple spelling, simple shapes, to uh, basic trigonometry and teaching kids trigonometry. So, it's a combination of educational software and video games mixed together. Sort of like little things, you know, like how to which which angle do I need to fire this cannon at to hit this target? That that type of stuff. But it was all all technically accurate, so it was great for me because I learnt loads of maths, right? So uh, so that was that was that was them, and we probably produced uh, oh, what's what's in about twenty, thirty titles. Produced like a load of titles. Uh, that was really really, really cool uh, cool company. What's they, happened to Mentor? Mentor eventually closed, I, 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 and I don't know, I can't remember why they they, they closed down. Uh, After you left. They, yeah, they, they, were, they were trying to sell the company at one stage. We had, we had done, one of the other things that we did in Mentor as well is they had uh, hired a French person because someone had asked them, could you do one of those programs for us in French? So that was my introduction to localization. So we were doing a bit of translation at the same time. So it was probably the first localization project I ever came across. And that was, you know, Forever, uh, way ago, you know. Uh, there was another, if you're interested, again, from a historical point of view, uh, the competition to us at the time was a company called School Software in Limerick. They were developing similar type of software. Uh, we, had, we had done quite well because we had got into the, uh, the official MSX catalog as well, and they were, they were doing reasonably well on the sales. So, but I'm not quite sure why. They were, it was set up by three school teachers. I'd have to go look and find out the name for you, but I would have them somewhere. And they were, you know, really nice guys, right?
1: How many people were there in trim?
0: there were the three guys and two people myself and the French person and we would do everything and then, and my younger brother Paul used to do some of the computer graphics for them so when we had the, the little characters so he would just do that on a freelance basis because he was in the background he was always in the background my brother Paul doing doing some and he, he was, he's a graphic artist. so anyhow I need a little bit of art I like, Paul draw me a cat draw me a, <laughs> an aeroplane he so said, that was his thing, you know, draw me a spaceship. So uh, he was always doing that, right? So that was, that was a mentor. Uh, obviously, all of this time was very interesting time in Ireland anyway, right, because there was massive unemployment, you know, lots of stuff going on. Um, I was still trying to make my big break into the video game business, right? Um, and That came then when I reached uh, at some stage. I can't remember. I was unemployed at some stage, right? Um, I think it was, yeah, when mentor closed down, I, I think I was let go. Uh, but I eventually finished up in New Concepts there was a company called New Concepts very first, which I think is the first games company ever in Ireland they claimed to have developed the world's first surfing simulator which I think is true uh, they had developed that on the spectrum and uh, had released it in the UK and it had done reasonably well it was formed by a guy called Norman Macmillan in uh, Carlow and uh, uh, the two other, two other guys so John Frayne and Matt, and I have to remember Matt's second name. Um, it was an interesting article done on, on them on the BBC recent, about two years ago. They did, BBC did an article on it, right? Uh, they had invested something like 20,000 euros each of their, their own money into the company, the, the former, right? price. Um, where I came across is they were looking to develop SurfChamp on... So SurfChamp was the name of the game. They wanted to develop it on the Commodore 64, so they were looking for Commodore 64 game developers. Now, before I tell you that, just go back uh, about that. Go back another step. The concept of Champ was brilliant because it had a little plastic surfboard that you put on the keyboard. So instead of, in the old days when the game was, you know, up, down, left, and right, because you had a surfboard and it had little uh, pimples on it, you could tilt it and you could, so you can, when you leaned on the board, you could do hang tens, you could, you'd be pressing more than one key, four or five keys, so you could have different so it was
1: only based on the, the, the pressure on the keys, nothing else. Yeah. That was, the entire interface was the keyboard. Yeah, but uh, you could yeah, do yeah, multiple
0: yeah. keys at the same time, and that, yeah, was, yeah. that was the thing. So, so instead of having in the up, down, left, right, you know, had seven or eight keys, nine keys you could press, right? Different things, right? So on that, well, so that was, that was, uh, that, I, so pity I should, I should have brought you a keyboard to show you because I still have, the, still have the surfboard, right? So from that, they were looking for a Commodore 64 programmer but I didn't know Commodore 64 code. I didn't know 6502, I knew Z80. But then it was just another language, so French, German, Italian, Z80, blah, 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 right? So I said, yeah, I'll do the job, right? So I got the job, right? Uh, first thing I did uh, was, no, actually, I didn't do it. I, so I learned 6502, it took me about two weeks to learn 6502 from Z80, and I started coding in 6502, right? Now, at the time, <laughs> we, had no, we had no assembly, we had very little stuff. We were writing this stuff on, some of it was being written on paper and, you know, basically input it into, in, into, the, into the system. So it was quite basic, basic stuff to what we were doing, right? Um, what I got the job, there was three programmers on us. Two guys were on the game. And my job was to write the educational part. So I know how to do a hang down. Right. <laughs> and all that type of stuff. So I did all the little graphics and the little animations. Here's how to do it. You press these on the keyboard and does the type of stuff. So little animations and, 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 and lots of stuff. So I did all of that stuff. Uh, so that was my first introduction to that. There was a lot going on in new concepts. I was there for about two years. Uh, they eventually folded because they couldn't get the money to launch the Commodore 64 version. And then we were looking for other stuff. We were, at the time, uh, I, was, I finished up as being the last developer there, and I was developing a program called Ski Champ. Uh, which was a skiing simulator, and we were working on that on IBM PC and the Spectrum at the same time, and uh, or I was. Um, and I had also developed a game on the Spectrum at the time called Vidi Vodi, which I was trying to get them to buy off me, and we had ideas for that as well, right? So Viddy so V-I-D-Y, V-O-D-Y, right? Uh, it was a sort of a space game, a bit like Jetpack, uh, and you could fly around and collect rubbish in space, basically. So the whole idea was collect rubbish, fix your spaceship, take it off, right? Uh, mm-hmm. But what Norman wanted to try and do was he had this great idea. Uh, we were working on other technology, which was a Mercury tilt switch, and he had put it in a helmet so that this was the new joystick. So we had a fire button, to fire, and when you tilted your head left or right, the character would move left and right. So it was our first step into virtual reality. So that was, well, we won't say a about Mercury and my head and things like that, right? So... <laughs> but that was why we were trying to sell that to Nintendo or, Nor- or normal was right so that was, our, that was the master plan right uh, the, as a concept and then they could run with the concept so uh, uh, but unfortunately they ran out of money and the company collapsed
1: So what year are we up to now when you, when you left New you're Concepts? I think about, uh,
0: about 85, 86 is it or 87 so I started off in Mentor Educational Services yeah. which then led me to New Concepts yeah. and then from New Concepts I did the Start Your Own Business course yeah. And then, uh, because that's, yeah, I was unemployed. Then did to the start of your own business course. Then went into, into comology as a software engineer. And then I went from there into Emerald Software. Emerald Software then was the big breakdown for me for, in terms of games. I had still been hunting in the background for games jobs and still doing things. Right, I'd still, I was still writing games in the background, trying to, trying to sell stuff. So Emerald was, started off as a division of, so at the time in the UK, there was a big games company called Martech. And that was run by a guy called David Martin. David wanted to set up an Irish games company uh, because at the time there were a few, there was a number of people coming from all of these computer clubs who were trying to say, look, we want to do our thing, right? So they came up with the idea of, and they got IDA funding to to set up Emerald software in Waterford, of all places. Uh, And they put out a thing looking for a number of developers. Uh, And they hired me there because of the experience I had with new concepts. They hired me straight away as the Z80 Man, basically right, uh, and uh, typical of 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 my games career, I was hired as a Z eighty programmer, and they said, "Right, you're doing the Amiga game uh, for us, right?" So I was into sixty eight thousand. Right? That's great, right? So, uh, um, so yeah, so I started off. Uh, now, there's another one of those interesting stories, and again, right, there's so much stuff I can tell you. Right, the first game we were asked to try and do was a game called Bruce Lee Enter the Dragon, right? And all of the team that was there at the time started to work on that game. Uh, but unfortunately, we didn't get it finished, right? And it was actually subsequently developed and completed and released by Daytech in the USA. So uh, I think at the time what they had done is they had sent it out to two companies to sort of see who... Why, why, was it,
1: why, why did you not finish it?
0: We just, I think it was our first game and we just w- weren't on the. but we didn't have that technical know-how. Yeah. And we just weren't able to finish it. You remember I, the way I talked to you earlier on? very easy to write stuff. Writing a game is very difficult because it has, you know, getting everything together. There was technology and bits in it that we were just struggling with. So Martech so,
1: take it off you and give it to the American company?
0: No, I think the, the license was just given to someone else.
1: Okay. Yeah, yeah.
0: Right. So that was a bit of a disaster for us. So we kept going, doing our thing. Uh, and then the next thing that came along to us was, uh, I think the next game was Vigilante, uh, which is the big game that I, that was my first mega game. Um, I'm trying to think of the order of all of these. There's a few of them in different orders, but Vigilante was an arcade conversion, um, which I, I coded in for the Z80. Uh, now, when I say the Z80, that was for both the Spectrum machines and the Amstrad machines. Because they shared similar code base, uh, I could port... I, I developed code that... The only difference was the, that was the sound chips and the uh, graphics boards were different. So I developed code that would allow me to to switch between the two engines, uh, between the two machines. And I also wrote my own sp- sprite engine for that platform. So I became Mr. Z80, as they say, right? So within a month of developing a Spectrum game, I could have it released on the Amstrad machines. So that was one of the things that... If you look back, and this is sort of going back and going, looking forward as well into localization, at the time you had to have the skills to reverse engineer a lot of the machines, develop your own tools, work out strategies for developing. Like you know, so so I ha- so we had teams. I became the, the man for if you had trouble, you could talk to Damien, right? So for example, we also developed the running man for Arnold Schwarzenegger. Uh, I didn't develop the game but I've got code in that game. So they, at the very start of the game, he goes down a tunnel, for example, and he goes, I'll be back. I don't just say I'll be back. He goes, "Uh, it's showtime. It's showtime. Right. Uh, But I coded that. That was the first digitization that we had done on a spectrum and I had to work out, well, how do you do digitization of sound on a spectrum? I don't have idea, right? So they're working out. Right. So, uh, so it's okay. And at the time, like even to this day on the spectrum, there's only a handful of games that do speech. Right. so that, that, that was one of the things I did. Uh, Vigilante was a great success. Uh, it was top ten, top five game in the UK. Uh, sold a lot of copies. And, you know, so I, had a, I, had, I was in the charts. I was, I had, a, you know, there was a, I was on the front page of, or the game was on the front page of a number of magazines. So It was brilliant for me. So it was my really big one. Uh, big, big, big game. Uh, and then obviously from that, then we had success and people were saying, Oh, Emerald is a good guy. Cause we had it on multiple platforms as well. The team there was developing on Spectrum, Amstrad, PC, Amiga, Atari ST. And we had a team developing on Nintendo stuff as well at the time. Uh, some of the original, remember the gray box, Nintendo, that won't be wrong. All in Waterford. Say that again. All in Waterford. All in Waterford. Yes. Uh, and it was like that was it was the first major operation uh that was a, a there was a, it was a David uh, sorry David from, from our tech was an, and a guy called Mike Dixon. He was an ex-Sony executive, he was one of the, the main guys as well that was, was helping us do stuff. Um I can give you the names, name rank and see a number of all the guys of, of who were who were who were there, uh, there's a there's a Wikipedia Wikipedia page on us uh, on that team, right? Uh, and then the big one that came along then from that, our success was Moonwalker from Michael Jackson was the next big thing. So we couldn't believe it, but the guys gave us the contract and we were like t- totally blown away, right? So um, th- that was a very interesting one because we all had to sign non disclosure agreements from Michael Jackson's people before they even talked to us, right? That was my first experience into the, the heavier side of, 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 of that part of the games business, right? Um, we, were, we were given the video of the film. And uh, We all sat down, watched the video of the film. We had pizzas and Coke and whatever, and doing our little thing. And uh, we just basically said, hey, How are we going to write a game? And they allowed us to write our own game script. So we basically wrote the whole game script in two days uh, with the whole team and said, Right, this is what we do. And then it took us about I think about two, three months to write the game after that. Um, very complicated game to do for a variety of different reasons, right? Uh, for me, obviously, I was doing it in two versions, Spectrum and Amstrad. We had four games and one so I had to write four games basically and then package it as one game and make sure it all loaded. So instead of just having a you know a simple thing. So that was hard in its own right. Then we also had Michael Jackson's people in in terms of every image that we produced from Michael of Michael had to be vetted by his people. You know, so I got into trouble because on the spectrum version he wasn't on his toes, he was on the balls of his feet. Redo all the graphics right so I'd redo all the graphics, right? The music, I had a guy sit down beside me with a stopwatch and time the music to make sure it was playing properly, right? Uh, so it was really, it pushed us in every single, every single corner. Uh, we did things like, in terms of code probably, we, we knew the Spectrum hardware, I knew the Spectrum hardware backwards. Right. There were things we were doing that the hardware was not supposed to do that we would make it do. Uh, you know, like things like we would store uh, v- variables in the calculator stack. You know, We knew I could make calls to the ROM to do stuff. If there was a byte, like if you did anywhere that you could find it, I'd know where it was, right? We On the screen, on the loading screen, for example, you could color parts of the screen black on black, so you couldn't see what was going on. But we would load code into the background of those screens so you could do stuff when stuff was loading, right? Um, but there was a lot of tricks we learned in, in terms of doing that. We used to do code audits uh, there were two two or three of us that did Z80 stuff. And w- when I wrote something and said it was brilliant, the next guy would come in and look at my code and say, no, two bytes, you're wasting it. That's too slow. You can write that. You, this, did, we, we timed our instructions on the T-state variable, T-state level, right? So we know that that's two T-states and that's three T-states. It's too slow if you do it 300 times, right? So that's what we were trying to do. Uh, so in terms of wh- when you look at some of the stuff... I look at some of the things that we did now when I go back and go, how did we do that? I don't know how we did that, right? Well, we never slept half the time as well. Uh, you know, I think I hold the record for working 34 hours in a row without sleep because we had a deadline to make. In those days, deadlines were deadlines because we had, I remember for Moonwalker, we had the, uh, my boss was flying over to the disc copier in the UK. And he said, right, we'll be arriving uh, at, at, at nine o'clock in the morning, have the discs ready and we will fly to the UK. So make sure the game's finished. <laughs> So we stayed all night and literally kept coding for the last minute, you know. Last save hours was doing at five minutes to nine, you know. So that's how you did it in those days, right? So how long did you stay in Emerald Suffer? Uh, we stayed in Emerald till the end, uh, which was, I think was 89 Emerald went bust, basically, right? Uh, because one of the things they were trying to push and develop a lot of different things in the games business. And the games business as a whole was also struggling at that time. Uh, one of the big challenges was when Nintendo was coming in. So, Nintendo put, sort of killed the business, but grew the business at the same time. So, anyway, Nintendo killed the business, uh, and, and that's sort of, sort of why, why I sort of died, ran out of cash, right? Okay, so from there, I went to a company called Tech International, and I was doing CAD software. Right, and we develop because natural progression for me is three D computer graphics. Yeah, same thing as it was always doing three D maths, right? Um, and worked for them for I said it says about a year, but I thought it was longer than that because I'd i known the guys from Data Tech for a long time. We so we had done an awful lot of work on and off with them, right? Where were they? They were based in uh, is it off the Grafton Arcade? Now in the middle of all of this, there's a, there's a few mixing things because of the world, right? I was unemployed at some stage as well, because I had my own games company called Scats Computer Games going at the same time, as well as all of this stuff, right? And I was doing other things. So it's good, because at the time you couldn't, there was no guaranteed work for doing anything, right? <laughs> so long story with data, data tech. Datatech. Tech were were were, were um, AutoCAD developers. I had worked for them for a while. They they also ran out of cash, and they folded up, right?
1: And oh, they, were, they were doing project work with AutoCAD rather than developing yeah. their own tools. No,
0: they were doing a combination of both. both. combination of yeah, yeah. both, right. But they lost their license, I think, to, to sell AutoCAD and there was some stuff going on with AutoCAD. They had changed the market anyway. So they, they, went, they ran out of cash and they went, went down, right. So when they went down, I started my own company called Scats Computer Graphics, which was developing CAD software, right. And the three of us formed that, myself, Derek White uh, and Gary Rafter, it was an interesting bunch because Derek White was uh, from X-Artist Graphics. So he's an architectural engineer. Uh, Gary Rafter was a mechanical engineer. And then it was me, who was just software, 3D graphics engineer, basically, right? That was sort of my space, right? And we were developing our own thing. And over to, one of the things we also did as part of that company was that we... Uh, we hired ourselves out, so we were guns for hire as well. If you needed custom software development, we we were available. We had a w- very wide scope of skills, right? Uh, and that's where we came across Semantic. So, <laughs> Semantic at the time were, uh, and it's still not localization yet. We're, we're looking for people to develop Norton Commander. So they were the Norton Commander. They wanted to develop the first version of that tool outside the United States.
1: Okay, so Semantic had bought Norton at this stage.
0: Yes. So we were approached and they were looking for software developers that, couldn't, that knew machine code programming and that knew how to do some translation and stuff. That was sort of the spec that we were sort of given, right? So we said, yeah, that's us. We know how to do localization. No, well, well it, wasn't, it was translation. We know how to translate stuff into French, right? So with the term localization, well, I can't even remember what it was used at that, time, that stage, right? So they hired our team. Uh, Tony O'Dowd was the manager at the time. Tony, I'm, I'm sure you're well aware of, right? Of course, yeah. So, uh, uh, so Tony t- Tony had put the budget together for, for, for the guys, to, for us to do that. He hired us and we started on that project. And uh, so slowly but surely, eventually, my entire company was working for Tony, right? So he said, Tony, just uh, just hire all of us, please, right? Because we're, we're doing so much work for you. It's, you know, we're making more money developing, you know, Northern Commander and, and, and your tools than it is than developing our own things. So that's what we did. Thank you for listening. The music used is Voltaic Fluctuations by Ben Prunty and used with his permission.